The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. Well, hello. My name is Paul Mills. I'm a professor of family medicine and public health at the University of California, San Diego. It's my great pleasure today to be here with Dr. Dave Schubert, who's a professor and head of the Cellular Neurobiology Laboratory at the Salk Institute here in La Jolla, California. Your main research area is in, in work on drug discovery, primarily for Alzheimer's disease and also Parkinson's disease. But you also uh, moved into the fray of the very controversial world of genetically modified foods, as well as the herbicides that are sprayed on those GM foods. And that's primarily the herbicide Roundup, which is used to kill the weeds as the GM plants are growing. And there's the primary ingredient of Roundup uh, called glyphosate. So it's great to have you here to uh, get your knowledge in this area. And I think our conversation is particularly relevant because, as you know, a, a superior court judge granted the state of California the right to begin to list glyphosate, that main ingredient of the genetically modified food herbicides, uh, as, a, as a carcinogen, uh, adversely impacting human health. So I'd like to begin by uh, asking, how did you, as an academic neuroscientist, move into the world of GM foods? Well, I have to admit it was something of an accident. I was on a San Diego County uh, group called the Science Advisory Board for San Diego County, and this was a group of scientists. There was sort of a mixture of engineers, basic science, academic scientists, clinical people, and their um, mission was to advise the Board of Supervisors on science-based issues for the county. And these issues included things like... Um, uh, fluoridation, uh, runoff, fire control, things like that. And um, I said, being a biologist on the group, I was asked at one point to write a white paper, which is usually the way it worked. It was, the, the panel would get some information and discuss things, get some witnesses to, to, to see what was going on, and then produce a, a, a short one-page white paper on you know advice to the supervisors exactly what what to do and sometimes they paid attention sometimes not and so what happened was a company had wanted to grow genetically modified rice in San Diego County which produced a protein that was uh, that was intended for medicinal use and this was in 19, in 2000 around 2000 2002 so it was at the early stages of you know the GM production and the use of this in agriculture to to a large extent. Certainly, one of the early events in medicine. So, so I wrote something up on this. I had some concerns. It was related to what I had worked on in the laboratory, and this was written up. And then it actually it got. Um, I still not clear exactly how. I think to Dick Stroman, who was a professor at uh, at UC Berkeley. And then I think he sent it uh, to Andrew Marshall, who is an editor of, of uh, Nature Biotechnology, which is a high-end mm -hmm. uh, biotechnology yes. journal. And he was interested, and he asked me to, to submit a paper on this. And so this paper was very straightforward. It just listed some of the concerns I had about the GM technology. And what really 
got me into this whole field, I have to say, is the response to that paper, which was there were 17, there was a letter immediately following the paper, 17 scientists signed on to that, including a number of them at my own institution. And the basis of this, the content of that letter was basically a lot of it was just simply not true. Mm-hmm. And so I found that very difficult to believe that, you know, academic people would actually sign on to something that they knew fundamentally was not true. There were things like they could... So my argument was, were, were threefold, that, you know, you, you proteins in plants get changed, different, modified differently than in animal cells. So it's going to be very difficult to make a, a protein in, animal, in plants that work in animal cells without being immunogenic. And I'd worked on that, my PhD thesis, something similar. And another argument was... You're going to uh, create mutations. You can't really control that. And the third argument was um, something about, uh, you know, the secondary metabolism of plants. You're not going to get products that you know out as far as small molecules, something else we work on. And so the idea that these people would, you know, write something like that and sign it and publish it and basically try to make me look extremely incompetent and bad when, in fact, everything I wrote was... Mm -hmm turned out to be valid, and it is still valid. And so that um, sort of led me to get into this, in a curiosity way, why they would do that and try to understand, you know, the motivation and sort of the background of this whole thing. And that was the reason that uh, I actually got into this. So as you know, when the GM crops are first created and to have approval to go to market, there's this concept of substantial equivalence meaning that the crop itself is basically safe, much as the isogenic version. And um, you were just mentioning how these proteins, they'll, they'll change characteristics going, say, from plant to animal. So can you comment on this concept of substantial equivalence, particularly in light of the recent paper uh, in Scientific Reports last year, uh, looking at the NK603 and some of the um, multi-omics characteristics of that seed? So the, the ideas were quite simple, actually, in the, in the sense that the argument made at that point was that, you know, if a corn is modified by genetically um, modifying its, its, its content um, by expressing a protein or whatever, that this is a, uh, um, something which is, in a global sense, very similar to what is normally occurring. But I think it's important to sort of understand the context of that and how these things, how these plants are modified. So there are three agencies within the government which deal with GM plants. There's the the Department of Agriculture, which basically has nothing to do with the safety or anything like that, but it controls where the, the where the, these plants can be tested and the, you know, the distribution and, and whatever. EPA is the other group, and they're responsible for testing pesticides and chemicals. And in the sense that, uh, like BT toxin is in fact a pesticide, so BT toxin expressing plants would be tested by the EPA. And it's important to understand also that the EPA does not do the testing itself. It's the testing is done outside of the um, uh, the organism, the government. It's done. It's Uh, sponsored by the producer. And there's been a lot of controversy recently about whether this is done honestly or not. Mm -hmm. And it's quite clear that it's a lot of this stuff is bogus. It's the way the testing has been done. And then the third group is the FDA. 
and the FDA, um, when this process was set up, how to regulate the GM food, the FDA was sort of a main focus of this. And the FDA um, does two things. Legally, is responsible for two things, major things. One is drugs, the drug, you know, testing drugs. This, we have drugs in the process, the FDA approval process, so I know something about that. And the other is food additives. And so with food additives, basically, are tested very similar to drugs in the sense they go through a fairly rigorous testing protocol. But part of that food additive testing is they don't do everything, and there's something called generally recognized as safe, is GRASS designation. And so this designation is that, you know, if you look at the product and it's very similar to something that's out there and there's no scientific evidence that it's different, then it can get approval without going through the animal testing and so on. And so when the regulation for GM products was set up, that was... The idea was to get this illusion that, that these products go through the FDA, but in fact without any testing. So this, the way they did it was they designated um, uh, GM plants as a grass product. I mean, it's generally recognized as safe, and therefore it requires no, no safety testing. So people have got to understand that there is no mandatory safety testing of any GM crop. And in fact, there's never been any, as far as I know, the FDA has never required any safety testing of any product. And so the, this grass designation then evolved into the, the, this substantially equivalent thing. And it's sort of a, that was more of an international consensus on how to term, the terminology used when, when this grass determination was you know, used in Europe and other places. Um, so so the, the paper that you mentioned just disproved this argument, which everybody had known actually for a long time. There are lots of other papers on this, that these plants which are genetically modified are not the same as the parent compound. So hmm. what Antonou and his colleagues did was um, you know, look at the molecular profile of the GM corn plant versus the isogenic plant and showed that it was really quite different. Substantial difference. Substantially yes. different. Mm -hmm. And this is true with essentially all of these plants. Okay. Another important topic, I think, with the original rationale for creating GM plants in the first place was that they would result in much greater yields. And with the idea that we need more yield because we have a growing population on the planet. And also accompanying that argument was the idea that over time we'd need less and less herbicides to be sprayed on the plants, so presumably the crops and food would be healthier for us to eat. Can you comment on this idea? How has that, that panned out? Well, it's panned out very poorly for the argument in the sense that mm -hmm. there's no evidence for increased yield. At, mm -hmm. And uh, there's no... The, the, the amount of herbicides or pesticides in general has increased enormously since the introduction of GM plants. And so there can be no argument about that. The, the glyphosate-based herbicides have gone up at least tenfold in the last 10 or 15 years. And um, a lot of the other plants require additional pesticides because the pests are becoming resistant. And so the total amount of pesticide use in the world has gone up enormously. And so there may be 
initially when some of these plants like Bt toxin, Bt toxin expressing cotton, for example, mm -hmm. are introduced, there's a reduction in pesticide for a short period of time. This happened in China and India and other places here too. And but then over time, the pests become the insects become resistant, and you have to start all over again, basically. I mean, can I ask a question on that? I mean, wasn't that anticipated because we all are, um, I think, admirers of the ingenuity and the adaptability of nature. So we would expect over time plants to become more resistant. And then we'd either need more of that product or we'd need to create another product to right. use on the plants. So this is certainly true with the, with the herbicides. Obviously, the herbicide-resistant plants are becoming very abundant. Their major problem is driving this sort of war of chemical biology versus the plant, um, you know, in, with it's now requiring the introduction of new herbicides, which have been used on a minor scale before, are much less so than required now for the production of GM plants, things like dicombra and 2,4-D and whatever. So that's a Those major, are being rolled out now? They're being rolled out now. They're marginally, the, the plants, I'm not sure exactly what the status of the plants are, but they're Mm -hmm. I, I know they're um, in production and whether they're used extensively or not, but that's the next line of GM plants because of the herbicide resistant in the context of Roundup and glyphosate. Is 2,4-D is or is it the other one that's already considered a carcinogenic agent? Well, both of them are. I mean, the dicombra and 2,4-D. And 2,4-D and is a component of Agent Orange and there are studies out there they're quite clear that you know these things are very toxic mm -hmm. and uh, so this is this is one of the sort of I like to say there are six myths which are always propagated by the pro jam people. this idea that the increased yield is one myth that's just not true mm -hmm. and the other myth is that these products have been proven safe, and so safety is an issue that in the context of public health, that's how I got into this whole discussion anyway, Indeed. is the context of public health. And so this is really a public health issue. And this statement that that uh, these these GM products are safe is just totally absurd and proven safe. I mean, let's put it that way. So, I mean, there are a large number of reasons for this. I mean, one, um, you can't prove safety. I mean, so in the context of drug discovery, as we know, that you can prove harm, you can suggest harm, but it's really difficult to prove safety. So that's why when you do a d drug development, you have to go through a series of animal protocols and show toxicity. You have to and, and show no toxicity at a certain level before you can expose people to it, these drugs. And that's the first step in both the, the FDA approval process for, um, for drugs and for food additives also, which is where the... the GM plant should be, and so, um, so the safety issue you can't. There's no epidemiology. How do you know if you, so? The argument is people have been eating this for years and there's no evidence of harm. But how do you know that? So the other thing is the recent one of the recent talking points of the GM industry is that there's a scientific consensus about this, and that these products are safe. And how can you have a consensus when they're all different? So these products are, each one is different. Each individual GM product is different. And we don't know what they are going to be in the future. So there's a whole series of 
both new technology making GM plants, and, and then there's also new types of plants, new uh, like these, these nutritionally enhanced plants or something new, where they put vitamins and you know healthy type components in plants. So there's just no way to make this statement that uh, you know these things are um, uh, there's a consensus and they're safe. And then um, the argument necessary to feed the world. There's as you're aware, there's been several statements from the World Health Organization and many other groups saying that this is just not the case. And uh, um, it's just the other. There are two other arguments. One is just like normal breeding. I mean, it's just a, normal a, breeding, a, plant breeding, to, yes. you know, uh, and uh, you know, plant breeding where it's been done for ten thousand years. It's the same type of process, and it's it's just totally ridiculous. And so, so then the last argument is it's less damaging to the environment. So this has taken a quite a quite a while to. Disproved, but it's quite clear now with you know the problems with the butterflies and and this destruction of the soil and so on. It's it's just not the case. I have seen some recent papers on the topic of the soil and changes in the microbiome of the yes. soil, etc. Uh, so this is also a good segue for my next question. Moving on to the the herbicides for the soil, which you mentioned, and I mentioned that the introduction. This uh, Superior Court judge just ruled the state of California can list glyphosate as a carcinogenic agent. And uh, there was a paper uh, published in 2015, the Journal of Biological Physics and Chemistry, which basically provides a large review of the carcinogenic potential of glyphosate, providing a review of many of the different biochemical pathways of which it might be acting to actually uh, support the onset of cancer. And I found interesting, in that paper, they cited several documents that they had obtained from a company that creates uh, Roundup in the GM crops, uh, Monsanto, that they had received uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, suggesting that some of the early research, Monsanto's own research, was indicating these pathways also being activated. But uh, these were never really brought forth at that time or subsequent uh, for the public or for the research community to utilize in our own research to um, study and test these products. Can you, can you comment on what you know about that paper? And, I, and the, well, I know that there's, an on, this, there's been some press recently about this. There's an ongoing lawsuit by a number of people who have got uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh-huh. and uh, they're suing Monsanto, I believe, mm. but because they believe that the Roundup was the cause of it. And so... There's clearly was some collusion between the EPA and the safety testing, and we know a lot of the claims now with, the, like the stability of glyphosate in the soil and water, they're just not true. One of the things I particularly wanted to cover that some of our viewers might not be aware of is that uh, yes, uh, these herbicides are sprayed on the genetically modified crops, primarily corn and soy, uh, the vast majority of which. RGM crops grown here in the U.S., but uh, the herbicide Roundup is also sprayed on some non-GM crops. Uh, for example, uh, much of the wheat grown in the U.S., maybe 80, 85 percent from what I've read. So many people might know that. They might be avoiding a GM crop thinking they're going organic, but in, in fact they're not. They would still be exposed to the Roundup and the glyphosate. Why, why are these non-GM crops sprayed with these, with these products? No, the reason is quite clear it's it's it increases a little bit the safety margin for farmers so the idea is to uh, 
kill the crop more rapidly. Normally a grain crop you would, uh, after it seeds, you let the crop dry out before it harvest, before you harvest it. And this takes a few weeks or some finite period of time. And if you can kill the crop very rapidly um, with Roundup or other you know, herbicides, then um, this speeds up the process and it reduces the risk of rain and mold and this type of thing. So, oh, so it's obviously not necessary. We've had 10,000 years of agriculture without this, but the, they found this is another way. I mean, the, the main goal of these companies is to sell their poisons, right? And this is the history of these, most of these biotech companies that produce the seeds is, is they're chemical companies and the idea is to sell these chemicals. So this was another way to do it. And what's surprising to me when I talk to people, most people are not aware of this. And so essentially any grain crop in that, that's not only here but in Europe and other places and you know things like sugarcane, South America, Central America, these, these crops are sprayed before harvest with Roundup or something similar to kill them. And this is certainly at the present time the highest source of exposure to glyphosate. So as you're aware, I mean, they're, they're, you can now measure glyphosate in your urine. It's in the foods. People are starting to publicize this. There's mm-hmm. information out there. It was basically difficult and somewhat, you know, people didn't, the, there was a lot of social pressure not to, not to publicize this. But mm-hmm. now, now that there's public access to being able to get your urine measured, people are realizing it. Essentially, there's this massive contamination of humanity, at least in the, the, you know, the Europe and the United States. Mm-hmm. Essentially, everybody has got this in their blood, in their body at quite high levels. And that's uh, much less, about tenfold less in Europe and the United States, but even, um, you know, like myself, I had myself tested and you know, I have a, a like a fourfold over the European limit that's in their drinking water, like mm-hmm. 0.4 parts per billion, which is tenfold lower than the uh, than the US, than the US mm-hmm. thing. So, Average. so um, basically, everybody has this in their in their system, and it's a it's probably the most massive chemical contamination of the human population ever. I would say much worse than DDT or any of these other mm-hmm. things. So. The question is whether that's relevant or not, and this has been the big issue, you know, in the in the this debate is whether these low levels of of glyphosate are, which have been shown to be toxic and probably probable carcinogenic, whether these lower levels are uh, significant. And I think that another paper by Michael Antonou, um, his English scientist, shows that this is in fact the case because he looked at rats which were exposed to very low levels of uh, Roundup. And uh, these rats developed a, a, a fatty liver disease, which is a precursor to liver cancer. cancer yes. And if you look at the American population, about 50% of these um, of Americans have this non-alcoholic form of fatty liver disease. And you know, whether and this has increased recently, along with liver cancer, the last twenty years, and it's much higher in this areas in the United States where they do a lot of That's farming. That's so, But what's interesting from a scientific point of view, so when science, you like to know the, the end result of the, the sort of the, the observation, whether a drug works or not. But you like to know how it works. And so, what was really nice about 
this Michael study, and it was followed up by something which he didn't know about, from what I understand. Another study where they actually found the target, the molecular target for the brown uh, for glyphosate, and this target turned out to be an enzyme in liver that um, breaks down fat. So this glyphosate uh, inhibits this enzyme, and that produces uh, accumulation of fat in the liver of these animals. And so you have a observation of a toxicity. You have the molecular mechanism, and it, it seems to me this would be an extremely strong argument about the toxicity of glyphosate. I also want to note for the viewers that uh, there are some papers out there, and perhaps you've seen them, that uh, for those who are concerned about glyphosate levels in their body, there are papers showing that if you switch to an organically-based diet, then the, uh, there is a washout of glyphosate out of your system, at least being detectable in urine, within, say, a week or two. That's right. There haven't been papers yet showing how it might or might not be washed out of tissues uh, where glyphosate is also routinely stored uh, for long periods of time. Uh, hopefully there'll be some research on that that we could begin to uh, learn and understand. I'd like to close then. Could you uh, comment uh, briefly on this topic of how the industry has uh, utilized some Nobel Prize winners to uh, disseminate certain viewpoints on the, uh, the glyphosate and perhaps the GM uh, crops in general? Last spring there was a major... Uh, concern of the GM industry in the sense that a couple of states had passed labeling laws. And so they wanted to try to stop that because they had this perception that if you label food as GM, people aren't going to buy it. And that perception I don't think was necessarily true, but you know, because people in Europe have been buying GM-containing products labeled as such for years, and they don't hmm. pay much attention. And so... Anyway, so they tried to, to, to um, stop this, and so one way they could do it was through legislation. And so they introduced a, a, a series of laws into Congress to, uh, to basically to limit or to stop this labeling. And so in, in conjunction with that, they had a big PR campaign to convince the politicians that, you know, that GM is safe and uh, there's no need for labeling, whatever. But anyway, so what they did was they organized a, a PR campaign based on Nobel Prize winners. And what they did was to get them to sign on to this this precision agriculture, which makes sense if you're a scientist, you don't know much about it, you're for science. and uh, Or even if you're not a scientist, a lot of these Nobel Prize winners that signed on to this were not scientists. It's, it's perfectly reasonable if I didn't know anything about the the, mm -hmm. yeah. the system that was strategy. Personally, okay. So what they did is they had a, they got about over a hundred Nobel Prize winners to, to basically sign this letter, and this, and then they did a, a big, uh, you know, rollout of this at a press conference in Washington D.C. Invited the newspapers, and so this occurred just at the, a few weeks before the sort of the ultimate decision was to be made about this this act about the Food Labeling Act, which had been going through Congress had very slowly been modified, and it ended up being modified totally to Monsanto's and the company's wishes. I mean, it, 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 it was a perfect thing for them. Well, that's very interesting about this food labeling campaign that utilized a lot of uh, Nobel Prize scientists. And from what I understand, that 
that uh, bill did pass. Is that correct? Yes, it, absolutely. It did pass. Obama signed it. Obama which signed was it, yes. Very depressing for me mm-hmm. because it was something that was essentially written to placate the GM industry, and it gave them a lot of uh, changes in the way that the GM policy is is regulating the government, mm-hmm. and it just was perfect for them, but it was really bad for the consumer. Dave, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been very interesting and I think important, particularly for our viewers of the UCTV Wellbeing Channel, because this is such a highly relevant and controversial area for health and our viewers uh, and, and others need to be uh, informed on this topic. So thank well, you for your time to today. do it. I hope Great. I got some ideas across. And... You did indeed. Thank you.